children. These are not stories that are told in newspapers. These are stories of people who, oh, I did a master's thesis and nothing worked, and then I left and now I work in HR at a mid-level company that sells cement. No one tells that story. But there are people who are trying to make work on the back of rubbish who are getting marginalised, and that isn't fair. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. Uh, today's guest has been described as a science thug, data goon, new bad person, and that guy that yells a lot on the internet. Now, if you haven't figured it out already, my guest today is James Heathers from Northeastern University. Thanks for joining the show, James. That's perfectly okay, Daniel. Thank you for having me on this podcast day. I believe that's how it's pronounced. That's the, that's the common vernacular. Well, I'm going to jump straight, in, straight into things, James. Now, your research training is in psychophysiology, which is a domain that you're still very much involved in. But uh, people might be more familiar with your work on, uh, on finding and exposing bad science. Now, it's reasonable for scientists to have an interest in identifying bad science in their own subfield, but I want to know how you actually got into the development of tools to detect bad science and uh, data goonery in general. Wow, I like that. Data, data goonery. Um, the, the move in to it as a separate area of study was somewhat accidental, and it's all due to, uh, it's all down to, it's all his fault. It's all down to him. Uh, this is all Nick Brown's fault. Uh, he was just a guy that I'd heard of on the internet. Um, I saw a photo of him and I thought he had a sick moustache. That's all the content that uh, I, that's, that's all I knew. And a tremendous fuss happened uh, around uh, an, uh, an article that was uh, eventually, I think it was published in American Psychology. Uh, Nick wrote an article with Alan Sokol, who is the famous author of a scientific hoax from the 90s. Well, it's not. It wasn't a scientific hoax. He he wrote a article in Critical Theory, which is if you're a scientist and you don't know what critical theory is, um, take two sociologists, uh, a schizophrenic, and like a humanities professor with one of those really really long subtitles, a vice deputy archdean of inverted upside down flaming non gender studies. Uh, put all those people into a super collider and then like squirt them around in a circle. And he, he wrote this amazing paper full of insane lies about physics and sent it to a, a journal called, I think it was Social Text, and they published it. And I was, I thought at the time this was enormously amusing when I found out about this at, at university because it was a paper full of scientific gibberish and you, it flattered someone's preconceptions and it, it just sailed into publication. So... He was probably the most famous. Uh, he's, he's kind of a figurehead for exposing uh, scientific or academic pretension. So I'd heard of Nick on the basis of the fact that he'd, he'd published with this guy who I was uh, enormously amused by. And purely by dint of circumstance, so people were talking about things on the internet, and as you do. Uh, I, I emailed him to ask a question about something that, that was being discussed somewhere. I think it was on a Facebook group. And he wrote back and said, 
I see you are XYZ. Do you know anything about heart rate variability? <laughs> now, this is this is the bridge from psychophys to bad methods in general. Because uh, people who are familiar with my work would sometimes contend that the only thing I know anything about is heart rate variability. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a question. It's a computational physiology question. It's how we do a lot of autonomic measurement. It's frequently done very, very terribly. Um, I've tried very hard for many years to get a good background in cardiology and signal analysis, sufficient that I feel like I understand it. So he wrote and said, do you know anything about this? And I said, yes. And he said, well, there's this other paper that I've got my eye on that's kind of a problem. And I got the data set. Um, Will you help me try and figure it out? And he sent me this data set, which was uh, just a trash fire. And if you remember, uh, I'm not a particularly forgiving person of bad heart rate data because that's kind of the focus of a lot of my research and he sent me this data and if a, like an honor student had brought this data set to me i would have uh i would have printed it out and then set the pieces of paper on fire in front of them it was it had it had zeros in it it had values that didn't exist it wasn't adjusted properly um the collection parameters were all wrong it was a, it was a, it was a terrible thing and we ended up writing about we ended up writing a paper, which is uh, which eventually, after a year or so of wrangling, eventually went to psychological science. Um, and then, yeah, considering the process, a lot of people go, "Oh, it's amazing that you've published in Psych Science." You go, "Yeah, amazing's not my opinion of them at this point in time. I think they've got a lot better, but um, at the at the time, I was uh, to say I was negative would be a an understatement. And anyway, um. It sort of it sort of happened. There was a, a bridge there from psychophys to broader criticism, and it happened due to paying very close attention to the data of a psychophys study. And that's how we ended up here because this this thing it's like red wine on the carpet, man. It just won't go away. Things keep turning up. I keep getting involved in something, um, and people. I feel like I have a, a in in most academics have a problem with responsibility, and I'm quite good at going ah fuck off. That's not my problem. <laughs> um, but I feel a responsibility to this now because people write to me and say, "There's this. I can't wrap my head around this thing. There's this 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 study. This is a problem. I'm in this bad situation where." I have to replicate this thing that doesn't work and I don't think it works and there's all these problems and no one will talk to me and I feel like I'm going crazy. And I talk to people who are under investigation themselves, uh, the people who don't trust their own PIs, people who don't trust their students, um, and an awful lot of people just go, here's this bad paper and I just need some kind of perspective on it. And the role just sort of evolved because there's no formal place for any of this. There's a peer, peer review doesn't cover even the most embarrassingly blatant statistical errors sometimes. So, I mean, the, the, the best example was a, a, a paper a little while back. There was a point where in two paragraphs they'd reported the mean as being three separate numbers. And I opened it up and went... <laughs> 
look, there's 17 people who are also 19 people who are also 26 people. I like there's a Schrodinger's sample size. I mean, this, <laughs> what is what is this craziness? And then I I realized it was on the ResearchGate platform, and the paper had been viewed 1,100 times. Now, that's what I'm talking about. The, there is a perspective in science where we uncritically accept conclusions. We are interested in the outcomes of things. We read abstracts and discussions and a little bit of the intro and then say, I like the way these ideas fit together. Let's roll that into what I'm studying. Let's roll that into my grant application. Let's refer to that in my own construction of ideas. And that can go to, it doesn't always, but it can go to such an extent where you have things that cannot possibly be true sitting in plain sight in very popular papers when no one has ever had the presence of mind to go, hang on, that's totally impossible. And it's totally impossible in a way where I think I could explain how it was impossible to a 14-year-old most of the time and have them go, yeah, but that's like, yeah, of course that can't happen. That's totally wrong or whatever, which is how all 14-year-olds sound in my head. <laughs> so those are the maintaining factors. The, the fact that people occasionally rely on having a sounding board for this. And there's no formal mechanism for any of it to happen. And it's when it when it when it's bad, it's quite bad. So that's the story of like where it's from and how it manages to maintain itself. Because I do have a normal job that I do all day. People don't really pay me to do this. I mean, I would like them to. I've asked for money to try and make that the case. Uh, if anyone's got an idea of how to expand a program in meta science research, that I, I call it my six o'clock job because after I uh, <laughs> after I finish working during the day, um, a lot of the time I sort of turn myself over to whatever in my inbox or whatever's being looked at at the time. So um, obviously it's it's not it's not sustainable. But if anyone's got any ideas on how to make it more sustainable, I'm all ears, and the rest of the world's already writing to me in the first place. Let us know. Now, you and <laughs> yeah, you and uh, you and plenty of others have gotten a lot of criticism for your criticism. What are some of the typical typical comments that you actually get here? Oh, um, well, it uh, it comes from it comes from a variety of places. Um, it's fine. I don't really mind having my motives questioned. I don't. I can't say that any of it really bothers me at all. Would you, um, it's um... just pe- it's just people hooting in the dark. But you look, you want to know what the criticism. <laughs> it's just you want to know what the criticism is, right? Um, there's one line of uh, there's one line that thinks that this is some kind of unhealthy obsession that it's not really worth uh, it's not really worth doing that it's be- it's becoming unduly personal um, that it, it represents some kind of bullying. And I, I love the I love reading things like that when I'm like worried about my rent and if whether or not my 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 postdoc uh, my postdoc contract will be able to be turned over next year and I'm I'm sitting there with the the cat in my underwear they're like half upside down on the couch and there's like these people in a position of power are bullying senior professors from other universities and I thought shit I don't look like how I always imagined a bully. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't I don't feel very bully like. Um other criticisms are with like whatever whatever comes up at the time. So if you're criticizing a food researcher, people will say you're obviously in the pocket of big big, big uh, chicken. But, uh, yes, it's the one we, we came up with the other day. I see you keep your eye on the internet, young man. What an excellent podcast you have. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is... Uh, being paid, someone accused Nick of being paid off by KFC. So we we, we, uh, we came up with the, the, the concept of big chicken. Um, uh, because Nick got a free coffee in a KFC once because they were t- taking too long to make his sandwich. So um, that obviously, that's a conflict of interest right there. Um yeah, the, the the irony of this, of course, is that no one does more canned outcome preset research uh, of the dodgy and available to be kicked to death variety than stuff that's heavily sponsored. So if we could, if we, uh, <laughs> if people gave me a heads up of where the corporate research was, you'd find out just how much love that KFC and Coca-Cola Amatil would have for me as <laughs> we started putting some of the more focused studies under scrutiny. No, everyone's ass is up for grabs, man. It's supposed to be a scientific principle. So, look, a lot of the time that there's, in general, I think people think if they are publicly critical, there will be a lot of criticism of what they do. There's probably not as much as you think. Um, people people can be quite appreciative of the fact that's happening. Um, they can... Uh, the, the, the responses I like best are when people take very serious looks at what's actually happening you you tried to reverse engineer a result or you said this or what you've uh the 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 thrust of that argument implies xyz and then when people come back at you with that stuff two things are good first of all it improves the methods heaps because a lot of the time we're looking for uh, errors or problems with techniques that don't exist yet looking at something and going that's patently ridiculous or we don't trust this guy or uh, we know that this lady had six other bad papers and they're really they're like they're problematic obviously these things happen in in patents um, which incidentally is an answer to the why are you continually picking on this person because because people don't write one paper they write a career's worth of of terrible things you know, it's like a, it's it's like saying, well, you know, the like the the whoever it was that did the the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Let's ignore them and go and look at uh, the Norwegian gas company and see if that. No, you 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 fight uh, you you fight the battle where you find the problems. You know, you you investigate, you look for fire behind the smoke. You don't just sort of run around in some kind of statutory position where you ask questions of everyone. All the errors that we find sort of come out of the ether no one's going i'm gonna get him oh i've got a i've got a plan i've got a 10 point plan to find someone and hit him with a stick it's not that things just fall into consciousness and there's nothing like enough time to be able to to chase all of them up but he's like where does it all come from there's there's the answer to your bullying question it just sort of happens it's mm. just around now when you it know? comes to dude what what you described as fighting this battle uh if you were to start over again would you actually do anything different or have a different approach i would do one specific thing uh differently uh i would talk to someone with very good computational cs skills uh earlier i would try and i would try and involve someone who has a better mathematical and 
code background than I do. Um, I don't know where I would have found such a person earlier, which is, uh, you know, because this is this has uh, been going on for a few years now. It mm. was just a, it, we're just sort of playing around at the start. What goes what goes wrong here? What can go wrong? Um, if I'd planned it from the start, we probably could have saved a ton of time by doing that. So yeah, I absolutely would have tried to expand the perspectives available right from the very beginning. Hmm. Good, good question. I see you're you're very practiced at this podcast business. Yeah, I think, you're, um, I think you... it's very very professional. Have you ever considered having a co-host at all? Yeah, I'm... <laughs> there might be room for one in the future, perhaps. Uh... Oh yeah, make sure it's someone particularly good looking who everyone thinks is uh, everyone thinks is so, uh, you know, f- funny and pleasant. Look, I'll, and I'll, put, never... I'll, I'll I'll put the feelers out. Uh, and never <laughs> says oh gross that that gets you into the senate in the united states yeah the out. so um you know i think one of the big issues when it comes to in investigating these data inconsistencies is separating uh nefarious motives from pure sloppiness how do you mm. go about how do you go about doing that is it even possible uh here's the here's the answer i don't care I don't care. I straight up don't care. Um, the whole the whole point is that it's uh, it's all about being right, you know. And by being right, I don't mean that you have some kind of irrefutable scientific proof of anything, either on my side as a, a, a potential critic or someone else trying to establish something. Or we're in, when I say right, I mean internally consistent or not blatantly insane. I'm not going to speculate about someone's motives. Um, I, I don't know if they're if they're making the data up from scratch, which is obviously bad. Uh, if they're getting the data and then changing it till it fits their hypothesis, uh, if they're making mistakes where they don't care whether or not they're making mistakes, like ah, it'll do. Yeah, we probably got that wrong, but I'm not changing it now. Or whether it's completely below conscious threshold, normal sloppiness, and no one's ever thought to tell them. Now, I don't have I don't have a magic wand. I can't know the mind of what's happening here. And all that really matters to the external community is that someone notices and points it out. This is something that you'd, you'd notice. About, you've probably read something that I've written by now. I'm not accusing anyone of bad faith. I don't think you're doing fraud. That's for like a university commission to take 18 months deciding whether or not you meant it. You need like a forensic investigation of the data. You need to find out who's involved. You need to find out whether all the reagents that you used existed, etc., etc. I can't do that. I have no authority here. Oh, we know that's just, so when I present this, and I presented this a few times as a platform presentation now, the whole framework for all of this is just error detection that's it when it comes to why the errors are there in the first place you do you right but it doesn't matter to you you know how you know how this happens like 99 and more percent of people reading a paper don't know the author it's not necessarily there they're reading a paper within their focused field all they're seeing is the conclusions as they stand papers are designed to communicate something within academia and that communication is all people get they don't get no broader context they don't know who to trust and who not to trust so the whole point is that the paper is corrected or retracted or occasionally happens whatever criticisms we have are totally misfounded 
In, at which point in time, I will apologize a great deal. Has We've it had happened? People don't res- um, there was a, I, I was, I was seriously impressed. Actually, uh, this was a while back now. There was a, after we developed Grim, which we haven't talked about. It's a, it's a technique for, it's so incredibly simple. It embarrasses me, but um, it works. It's a way for determining whether or not means can exist or not. Uh, we found old papers by, I think it was Carol Dweck. And they had a bunch of grim errors in them. Um, and we we wrote to her to say we found all this stuff. And she went, oh, that's that's a real problem. Uh, we need to look through that. And not only did they go back and find the old data and try and figure out what had happened, they wrote up a white paper and sent it back. They took all the criticism seriously. They tried to figure out what was going on. Uh, some of it was uh, detail that was missing from the papers. That not only did they take it seriously, but they had like an answers and a perspective on absolutely everything. And I was so much less concerned to not only see that happening, but to see answers like, okay, that's probably our failure to understand X, Y, Z. There was still problems, but it, the whole the whole perspective of we have enough time to take this seriously and write back to you it was t- totally 100% confirmed. They were incredibly professional and straightforward. And there was no question of you're doing this because you shit people. It was a matter of there's questions that need to be answered. We should probably spend a little bit of time answering them. That, that yeah, seems so to be some, the some, outcome. Some responses are enormously positive, and you're never going to read about that. That's never, oh, it's the next case of X, Y, Z. It's always none of this Keystone Cops bullshit. That is just normal scientific discourse. And some people are fine with it. Straightforward. We had a, writing the actual Grim paper, we had a lot of people like that as well. Hey, you know, there's a problem. They're like, oh, shit, is there? Ah, man, I got to take a look at that. Let me, uh, oh, fuck, we, ah, we didn't do that. I'll write a car again up to the journal. How did you spot that? That was cool, man. No one's, no one's going to prison. No one's going to the choke. You know, the only names that you've heard of are the reason that this, these things become an issue is like one, one thing happens, like you make a criticism of a thing, a, a particular paper, a single idea, like you notice something and then you are the journal ignores you the author doesn't give a shit and then you find another thing because you're wondering like, why you don't you care about whether or not your work is accurate and then you find something else and then you have a discussion about that and then absolutely nothing happens and you start to get frustrated you start to find more errors you start to find things that are really problematic now when that happens and there's no there's no appropriate response from the other side. At that point in time, the pressure starts to build. The volume starts to build. And we end up having... Because you end up talking to other people about the results. You end up writing about how you can't get answers. You know? And you don't get... You're like, can I see the data from this paper? Which is supposed to be as normal as saying... Uh, it's like, oh, it's nice to take a photo of you, but can you take your hat off so I can take a photo without your hat off? Oh, there goes the hat. It's supposed to be like a... a no- Why did I pick that example? Fuck. Um... <laughs> It's 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 supposed to be a normal part of scientific discourse, and when you make tons of errors, and then you you treat these things as like an annoyance. So it's like the accuracy of what I'm doing doesn't matter, yeah. Mm. And your questions don't matter. I'm going to ignore you. What you're doing isn't important. What is the what's the implication of that? There's no point talking to you. 
Now, I've found something really interesting. Really senior people, people who you've heard of, if you write to them about whether or not their stuff is accurate, they write back. So this isn't some authority-driven attitude. This is certain individuals who feel like the accuracy of what they do is not important and they're not a member of a broader scientific community that values making sure things represent what they say they do. Now, you mentioned before this idea of uh, error detection and that uh, the Grimm test is essentially a, a tool for error detection. Um, that actually reminds me of uh, Michelle Noyton's approach with StatCheck. And uh, I think a number of journals now have implemented StatCheck within um, the journal submission process. Um, are, there mm. any, are, you, are you and Nick and the others uh, in your team actually pushing for, for Grimm or for Sprite or for your test to actually be implemented within that journal process? Is, is there any moves around there? Mm, no, it's hard. Um, StatCheck is very cool because you, it allows you the, the syntax of a paper is such that you can run it through uh, a series of completely automated commands that will be able to retrieve the results and say something I would like to be it would take money and time and development and it still might not work to be able to do that for Grimm now, if it was my whole PhD, yeah, then maybe it would be possible. But you would need to talk to uh, machine learning people. You would need to take a look at like a ton of syntax. Um, it would only work within certain formats. And then it would fall to pieces anyway because you end up with things like uh, the outcome of the scale is reported. Well, is that one item or five items? Or three, or did you drop two, or did you not include any of the subconditions? Now, p-values in that case will be consistent with their reported test statistics, but the Grimm, you've got no chance. Because it'll say something like, oh, we administered this scale the way we did <clears throat> in previous study here. Sorry, you could have gone read previous study and look in the appendix to find out how many subscales they included. So... In many respects, it's easier to use if you know what you're doing. We can, you, can, you can do Grimm with a biro and the back of your electricity bill. Yeah, it ain't hard. But it is very difficult to find it a target to automate. Uh, Nick thinks it's impossible. Jordan thinks it's possible. Um, they'll probably hear this. Hello, both of you. Pair of reprobates. <laughs> um <clears throat> I think there is I think it's possible to get it to a format where it can do some of the <clears throat> excuse me I think it's possible to get it to a format where it can do some of the work it's never going to be perfect I think there's an intermediate step on being able to make it work some of the time that would be valuable well, I think in the case of uh, StatCheck as well, um, that also work, work only works within particular constraints. So if your data isn't reported with an APA format, it's not going to work. So it seems like um, any sort of tool yeah. that you're going to develop is going to be the same sort of thing. Within certain constraints, it seems like it may work. Yeah, yeah. Even even the problem of how do we turn a PDF into text and then suck the values out appropriately such that they might be analyzed is a technical problem because a PDF is a bin file. <laughs> and and copy editors fuck with them to make them look good and they do they do all there's all sorts of gremlins hiding in the ability to just pull the data out of it in the first place 
Um, HTML would be a lot, lot better just as a general journal format. But the PDF is kind of, it's here to stay for now at least. And us resenting them is not a good reason for everyone to change their practice of how they get a journal article and communicate stuff, you know? They've got a format. Unless you start your own journal, most people are going to stick to it. And fuck the Adobe Corporation. I can say that here, right? On that note, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back soon. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Today I'm joined by scientific McCarthyite James Heathers discussing his recent adventures in data thuggery. But before we continue, there's a few things that I want to cover. Now, <laughs> James has lost his, he's lost his camera. Uh, hey, uh, I love that. Oh, I don't know. My favourite one is accuracy fetishist now. I, I, I love that. Hey. Oh. You can have too much. You can have too much accuracy, and it's the only thing that makes you hard. Yeah. I mean, it's just. Whoa. I'm okay. A, I'm an accuracy fetish. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. You do your you do 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 you, your podcast things. I will, I will attempt to be a good guest and oh. not interrupt with cackling. Now, um, you know what? many of our listeners ask how they can uh, support the show. And there are a few ways that you can do this. You can show your support for the show by sharing links to our episodes on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you can write a review on iTunes or uh, even just send us an email. We had a really interesting discussion with a listener on the role of technicians in the sciences, something which we might um, circle back to in a future episode. Um, we also had a few people digging into the Hertz archives. Uh, our episode on software that we use uh, has been a pretty popular one. That was all the way back in episode 15. So if you're interested make sure you uh, give it a listen. Um, we've had a few uh, German speakers having a laugh at our attempts to pronounce German names. Um, but, so, <laughs> yeah, thank, thank, thanks for the tips. Um, and I also want to give a special shout-out to a friend of the show, Sam Parsons, who is at Sam underscore D underscore Parsons on Twitter, who acknowledged everything hurts in the acknowledgement section of his PhD thesis. So uh, thanks, Sam. We uh, appreciate the, um, the shout-out. Uh, there's also been a call to start up a Twitter account that tweets quotes from the show without context, like the Very Bad Wizards No Context account. Uh, I've had a few entries, so if someone wants to do it, uh, they can they can go for it. Uh, if you're interested as well in the nuts and bolts of running a podcast, there was actually a recent tweet storm from the I Am Psycom Twitter account, which we'll link to, in which I answer a few practical questions about podcasting. Um, I think it's fantastic to see new science podcasts popping up, the most recent being The Base Factor. Welcome to the Echo Chamber, JP and Alexander. And uh, I think this is great. This is fantastic. There should be more. So if you're interested in starting starting up your own podcast, have a read of this uh, tweet storm, which I'll link to if you're interested. Uh, another thing was, um, uh, since my advice a few episodes ago to personalize reviewer invitations to increase reviewer response rates, I've actually had a personal jump in receiving personalized invitations. One of the <laughs> yeah, you talked yourself into I that. I did. Mate. <laughs> I did. Well, one of the editors actually said, uh, "Following your advice on personalizing invites and everything hurts, I'd like to invite you to review this manuscript." So uh, yeah, there's uh, there's that. 
But um, today, <laughs> we'll move on. And today we're, we're talking about um, investigating uh, inconsistencies in, um, in, in science. And I'm um, here with, uh, with James Heathers, who's been doing a lot of this work. And uh, I want to put this to you, James. I think um, one thing that's often absent from these conversations of, of dodgy data or inconsistent data is how this actually affects other people. You know, you have this situation where you have junior scholars that are actually saying no to their mentors' p-hacking directives, or you have students who can't uh, replicate p-hacked results. Now, can you tell me a bit more about these peripheral victims of this? Well, you've kind of you've kind of shifted narratives there. Um, I, I don't think what what we find when we 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 check a paper for inconsistency is not really not really p-hacking. I mean, okay. you'd assume that anyone who had the presence of mind to try multiple analyses that were intrinsically correct would not be making horrible yawning errors <clears throat> in any of their work. So we're not really finding that. In fact, there's a, a people who think that questionable research practices are a problem have occasionally said things like, why do you bother with trying to find what is potentially fraud or terrible mistakes, etc., etc., when p-hacking and QRPs are a much bigger problem in scope? Hmm. P-hacking and QRPs are borderline normal a lot of the time. <laughs> That's a big problem. And we don't think too many people are dodging up results or making terrible, incompetent mistakes or doing fraud. Now... There's a certain truth. There's a certain truth to that. Um, but there are other reasons to do this. And one of them is the fact that discussions about methodology a lot of the time are largely confined to scientists. There is uh, a very strident open, continuous discussion about how we should avoid manipulating the research process in order to make research more transparent and trustworthy. However, if you find problems in a paper and then it turns into something that goes into the public consciousness, it is a lightning rod by comparison. The The amount of collective interest in how could something this bad be happening is tremendous compared to discussions about methodology. Part of that is a prurian interest. It's people going, oh, this person's so clever and important, but they've done something wrong. That aspect of it appeals to all sorts of journalists and not just the sort of sensible, long-form, data-driven ones, but the kind that run around after ambulances as well. Everyone wants to hear a, a a story about how that goes down. It's got an element of kind of cloak and dagger to it, even if the work itself is nothing like that whatsoever. And scientists also see those discussions. Look at this incredibly large problem. Has a massive, massive exposure compared to, well, everyone's dropping their subgroup analysis and that makes the literature untrustworthy. It has a way of marshalling eyeballs and support and questions and soul-searching in a way that discussions of methodology probably will never have. Yeah? 
when something like this happens, I would talk to like, the, all the, the, the fuss that's going on at present. I think we're up to about eight journalists by now. That's a few. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, if you had a research center that was doing this all the time, if it was getting funded, if you were if you were finding a lot of cases, if people were helping you out and going, please tell me I'm not going mad. This research is uh, this research looks like it's really problematic, uh, and and you had the resources and time to look into that every time it happened. There would be a global, loud, continuous discussion of how common this was. The perception of there are structural problems in science would be would go up an order of magnitude. The noise about this is interesting to experience. It travels all over the world. I get requests from Europe and Australia and South America and places in the U.S. and not just from people who are the usual suspects within a small community of science writers, who incidentally are almost exclusively very good, but from normal people who cover science and economics beats. This this raises an alarm in a way that other things do not. And I've forgotten to answer your question. That's all right. <laughs> what was the question, by the way, just in brief? Uh, it was basically how this kind of stuff, all these errors affect people's people's careers more peripherally be it phd students or people more junior than letter um well that's a very good question i'll answer that too now i'm done yelling um that can be that that happens directly and indirectly the direct way is very obvious is that you you get stuck believing things that will lead you astray you can you can take years of someone's life with a project that's designed to extend or replicate your flashy result that is wrong or made up or illusory so that and that does happen these are not stories that are told in newspapers these are stories of people who i did a master's thesis and nothing worked and then i left and now i work in hr at a mid-level company that sells cement no one tells that story but there are people who are trying to make work on the back of rubbish who are getting marginalized and that isn't fair and it's as you know i've got half an eye on those people the more collective eye is the fact that if you spend an enormous amount of time sucking in public and private philanthropic resources to make bad research then other people who do not do bad research are not getting money you are crowding out yeah you're like an invasive species in a local ecosystem you are crowding out the things that are work working the way that they're supposed to do in the first place yeah it's cuckoo science sitting in the nest with its mouth open bigger than the mother bird yeah hoiking worms and grant money into its mouth and it's going oh yeah yeah i'm totally i'm totally supposed to be here it's a waste of worms and we don't have enough goddamn worms. I've got to drop the analogy. We don't have enough grant money to go around in the first place. We have a collective structural problem where we grow a fantastic amount of PhDs to do all the work. And we get money to pay them and then occasionally some postdocs and then occasionally some faculty after that. There is a structural imbalance between the amount of possible junior and senior researchers in the first place. When I people used to talk in, in Australia, they used to go, "Oh, grant lines used to be like thirty percent, but now it's more like twenty-five. <laughs> oh. 
Oh, it's ERC grants when they came. I think they did grant lines in the single digits. Yeah. Some of the NIH schemes are not too much better. Like 10, 12%. And these are all things that need to be written and published. You are taking money out of a system that is already stretched. Even uh, That's even, immoral. Even oil-rich Norway is hitting single digits now when it comes to grant success. Yeah, really? Yeah. Shit, is that a, like a like a local scheme? I'm sure you guys have got a like a frontline everyday yeah, our sort, sort of, of um, sort of big national one. The, the the most recent one for early career researchers was about, I think it was nine percent success rate. So it's oh bonkers. Man. See that see, every single one of the ninety one percent. I'm not just talking about people's disappointment and inability to follow up good ideas or what are potentially good ideas, but all of those need to be read and reviewed and then they need to be put into a system where something that is very arbitrarily better in quotation marks than something else is judged to be successful and something else is judged to not be successful you are introducing an element of totally arbitrary kind of king making into this system now i want to switch gears a bit um would it be correct in saying that you wouldn't have much work to do in this context if people actually posted their data as part of their papers, correct? Uh, it'd be it'd be an awful lot faster. Um, you, you're correct in the sense that we've spent a long time thinking about how to analyze descriptive slash summary statistics and how things can and can't assort just on the basis of what we've seen in a paper. Um it would be an, if if that was always the historical standard. I don't know how it would have been, um, considering that there were still journals switching over to digital in the early two thousands. Um, yeah, it would have made an awful lot of stuff an awful lot simpler if you were simply able to access the data that was involved, because there are so many more patterns to observe. There's so much that could go wrong if there was a problem with the data. When you can see that, if you know what you're looking at, and I, uh, what what I would do would have to be much more domain specific if that was the case. Ain't no one sending me neuroimaging data and me going, oh yeah, it's all motion artifacts. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. So open data in combination with open methods make things really easy to check. Open data a lot of the time is an insurance policy for the future that you haven't fucked anything up because that is something that you will need to do lunatic archaeology on yeah have you ever tried looking through someone else's unannotated data set oh it's horrible you it's it's like it is like trying to it's like trying to cut a tree down with your fingernail and you should go oh how does this work and you push it around and push it around and push it around you only do it when it's absolutely necessary um data and methods together a turnkey analysis clickety clack there's the outcome and when you say when you say methods, what do you mean specifically? What sort of what sort of stuff should people be reporting? Oh, an, an an analytical an analytical pathway of something to something to something else. Everything that you need. The ideal situation is any platform where you can upload both the ability to analyze the data and the data itself, in something that's accessible to everyone. You see, I, so I, you know, it, it's it's also something that it, it crowds out commercial software very heavily. Because you can't expect everyone who's reviewing it to go, oh, God, well, I need to go and buy a $1,200 analysis program. Get fuck, no, you don't. You see, We're not I, putting up with that. You need to be, it needs to be accessible. Otherwise, how can it be checked? Yeah, I think that's, that's where the big disconnect here is, is that we know that having enforcing data deposition and enforcing some sort of 
data, data analysis group would actually help this, but journals simply aren't doing it. A lot of journals are actually recommending that this is the case. Um, now, thinking about um, ideas from, from Chris Chambers, who's introduced um, um, registered reports, he's had, I, th- I think he's up to now, well, I think the idea of registered reports is now 70 or 80 journals. Um, and there's it, a lot might of be, it might be more than that. It keeps, it keeps going up. And this this is fantastic, and this is going to go a huge way into reducing publication bias. And a lot of journals are on board. Is there any way that I I love registered reports? I've never done one because it's not particularly congruent with what I do. But the idea that I think it's a good if you really know what you're doing, I think it's an excellent strategic move. You're making something more trustworthy that you can guarantee will get published. It's you know, win, win, it's win, gonna win, be, win. It's going to be less disposable. It is one of those nice everyone win situations. If you say, I tested that, we did a registered report, and we tested that exactly the way we said we were going to, and we found it, I'm going to go a lot further in believing you that you're observing something that is reproducible and repeatable, and I'll just say real. I would take a registered report article in a so-called lower impact journal over a non-registered report article in a in a fancy pants journal any time of the day. Any time of the I day. I would take the concept of uh, lower impact and fancy pants journal and I would set both of them on fire <laughs> from the genitals outwards and then kick them repeatedly in an alleyway. It's This uh... is a, yeah. Oh, you you've probably noticed by now I'm not really much one for hierarchies. <laughs> Well, one thing we do with uh, all our guests is I ask them some quick fire questions. There's a few questions I want to fire. Do you? Yeah. There's a, there's a few things I want to fire over to your, your your way over over in Boston. You ready for the questions? All right. First question, James. Yes. Go, go, you go. Get, okay. You get to show one slide to every introductory psychology lecture around the world. What would it say? Trust nobody. Okay. Oh, that was quick, wasn't it? That's was um, no. It's, it would. It would. It would. It would. I think the right mindset for looking at and receiving information about what we do when you see a slide in a talk or a piece of a paper or a blog post or something like that. I think that you 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 have to suspend your critical faculty at some point in time and accept things at face value. Yeah, you just have to go, okay, look, I don't have the time or energy or ability to unpack everything that I see in front of me. But you should always try to be pushing back. Yeah, not this trust but verify thing. You should always keep, you like that critical engine should always be running. You need a mil-spec critical engine that is always operating at some gear. Trust no one check and think because the moment you start going yeah i'm sure it's fine it's her um that is it's not it's not dangerous as much as i don't like where it heads and i maybe people don't want to be on edge all the time but i think that depends on the area of course it's things that you can consider if you're in a very hard quantitative field it's very easy to consider something to be established or proven etc i know i shouldn't use the word proof but anyone who's got a problem with that lexically i invite you to eat a soldering iron um you know what i mean 
Anyway, that's the long explanation of my short answer. That was good. That was a good quick answer there. Okay, give me another one. Okay. What is one thing you believe that others think is crazy? Oh, um... That presumes I know the mind of others, but my immediate answer is uh, very few people know what they're doing. Very few people really genuinely know what they're doing. Um... And to, to, to an extent that should alarm people, to an extent where you should sit down and go, it's amazing that we're here at all. I don't know if it's because of the, like the, the culture of my particular wrinkle of non-invasive physiology research. It happens where you have, um, essentially, a lot of the time you have social scientists attempting to publish results within the biological sciences. And most of them... Uh, could uh, let's 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 use a euphemism and say could benefit from significant improvement <laughs> like starting from scratch with a different experiment and observations but um i think because of the way we've constructed scientific culture now everyone is in such a rush to make observations and to be associated with them and to be part of a to, to plant a flag on a hill there's a, an extent to which any flag and any hill will do and I'm not blaming the people in this example I'm not saying and they really should know what they're doing as much as I think it was far far more common in science previous to the present uh, the version of our our era of modernity. I think it was far more common for people to spend 15 years working on one specific thing until they really, really, really knew it and then find something that genuinely mattered when they'd managed to, to focus everything they did. There's a great story about that, incidentally, in um, the Nobel Prize lecture from the Karolinska, which I saw yesterday. Um, I think it was Jeff Hall. He was describing... Um, he was describing this. You know, the, the, there was this guy at this lab, and he, they, they go, um, he's so incredibly scrupulous. But he told me, "Oh, I still haven't found anything yet." And he worked on, "I haven't found anything yet for fifteen years." And then he finally, then he finally found something and immediately won the Nobel Prize because it was significant. People, people don't work like that anymore. I get the feelings that domain switching and the pace that is required to act within the system that we have either designed or let happen has seriously affected people's ability to have good insight i don't know if i'm being unfair i don't know how many people would agree with me but i get the impression that to the extent that i mean that not many i'm not super happy with that answer but that's what i got it's fine uh now final question uh what have you changed your mind about in the last year or two oh um The idea that there's a the idea that there's a right way to the idea that there's a right way to address a problem. Uh, Can you give us an example? Um that's 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 difficult. I suppose I'm having I'm having a little difficulty articulating this. Um, I think I used to believe that there was an optimal piece of software 
or an optical analytical method or an opti- optimal series of observations and that you should have that in mind somehow, that that should never really leave you, that there's, there is actually, at the end of all this, a right way. And I think I've either become busy enough moving further into postdoctoralhood or become more tolerant of imperfection like that or started to accept the fact that things are really, really heterogeneous. And I think I've stopped worrying about that so much. I certainly start a lot less sentences with, but why didn't you? Maybe I'm just getting older. Maybe I'm becoming more tolerant. I I, I always understood the pressures that uh, PIs and people who were people who were responsible for making sure the lights were on so you could do all the work in the first place. As much as you bitch about having to do all the work, you're not responsible for making sure that the environment... I think I always understood that on an intellectual level. And then having more contact with people where the whole research program has gone tits up and there's like serious structural problems, like watching people have to shutter labs and, and shit like that. Um... I think the, the, the unforgiving nature of the, the process and the, the amount of swimming that some people have to do just to keep standing still has probably made me more tolerant of doing things in the way that they can be done. It's not to say you should sacrifice accuracy and you better not or Nick will find you. <laughs> no, it's... I like to I threaten people like, like, like he was Krampus or something. I, I threaten people with that now. Um, some people still don't know what I'm talking about, but uh, that's that's fine. All right, that's a, I'm I'm reasonably satisfied with that answer. I hope I've communicated that adequately. I think so. Well, uh, he is hoping. On the, on that note, but, we thank gonna... you, thank you very much for having me on your podcast day. Look, this I... is an interesting experience. Um, I might I might care to repeat this. Actually, go on go on myself a, a few times. You know what? I'll tell you what, Daniel. It is Daniel, right? Yeah, yeah. I might even I might even get my own podcast. I might even um, you know, like participate in one of these on a structural level, like like re- regularly. Yeah, well, semi regularly, depending on the schedule of my collaborator. <laughs> um, yeah, because you know it's um it's quite it's quite fun, isn't it? This is the sort of expositive nature of this. It's it's nice to explain yourself in a context where you feel like people might be listening. So much of what we do is screaming into the void, and we we, we hope we hope that people listen, and I think a lot of the time people pay attention without even having really the time to let you know that they paid attention. And it's 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 nice to know that people are listening sometimes, and he, here here in the literal sense, I suppose. Mm. I don't know. That was I was sort of trending into the semi-profound area, so um, I might sum all that up by saying balls. <laughs> Until next time. Back down to back thanks. down to the ground. Thanks for listening. See you later. Cheers, everyone. Bye.